letter of James is all about maturity. It's all about growing up. In this letter, we have a, a, a remarkable absence of doctrinal teaching. This letter is all about application. Very different than Paul's letters. Paul begins by talking a lot about doctrine, about truth. And then he spends the rest of the book, about the second half, talking about how to live it out. But James goes right at it. Before we jump in here, let's give a little background on this book. You know, we'll do a little introduction to it. The first thing we want to talk about is the author. The author is, of course, James. What do we know about James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus, of course, had many brothers. Half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. If you read through the book of Acts, that's recognizable right away, even in conversations in Galatians. You can see James mentioned with very much respect. It's amazing how Jesus' brothers, including James, doubted him. Even counseled, thought he was crazy, wanted to just take him home. But after his resurrection, James came to faith in Christ. And oh, how God used him. But you know one of the interesting things about James? Traditionally, James was known by his knees. What an interesting thing to be known by. I mean, surely he was a a leader in the the church in Jerusalem, you know? Surely he was an influential follower of Christ. But the people that knew him knew about his knees. They say he had knees like camel's knees because of his prayer life. Think about that. The guy was so oft on his knees praying praying for the church, praying for God to do amazing things in the people's lives around him, opening doors and spreading the gospel. So much time on his knees that it showed. Huh, interesting. So this is the letter writer, the author. Certainly the author ultimately is God, but God used James to pen it. Let's talk about the audience. You may notice right away in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the address to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Hmm. Well, those 12 tribes instantly tell us that the audience is Jewish. This is a reference to Israelites, the Jews. But it also tells us something else about them, friends. It tells us that they were believers because James, you know, no book of the Bible is, is written to those who have turned their back on God. This letter, my friends, is written to believers who are Jewish and they are in what is called a dispersion. Diaspora is often uh, how it is referred to. And uh, this dispersion took place right in the right in, as a response to the events of Acts chapter 7. As a matter of fact, chronologically, we would take the letter of James and place it right after chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And as long as we're talking about it, why don't you turn there? And we can look at the events that took place. 
Now, of course, uh, you're good students of the Bible. When you heard Acts chapter 7, the first word that hit your mind, I'm sure, was Stephen. Wait a minute. He was preaching, and they killed that guy. Take a look at Acts chapter 7, and we'll look at the end of this. After stoning Stephen for preaching the truth of Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sin and rose from the dead. In chapter 7 of Acts and verse 54, we read, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Think about that. Can you imagine? What was the last time you were so enraged about something that you went like this? That's how they felt in hearing the truth, my friends. They ground their teeth at him. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They picked up big rocks, pummeled him. They killed him for the testimony that he gave of who Jesus is and what he did. Hmm. Wow. And notice, and the witnesses laid down their garments, you know, so they could really swing those rocks at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be known as Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sounds like his Savior, doesn't it? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Apparently, even while they're chunking rocks at him, he was still concerned that they would trust Christ one day. He knew what the penalty was that they would face in rejecting Christ. Hmm, wow. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a beautiful picture. It doesn't mean he took a nap. It means he died the, the death of a Christian. He just slipped into a new life. And look at here at chapter 8 and verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Hmm. Wow. So this dispersion is persecution. These people are being hounded just like Stephen. You know, when you can't uh, silence or answer the message, you try and silence the messenger. And after all of these believers, they went, hmm, wow. So they were experiencing great persecution. And James has a word for them today. You know, it's uh, Independence Day weekend here. We see a lot of the flags. We see a lot of the color. I can see some back there, my friend. There you go. I mean, the flags are every patriotism thinking about. And I'll tell you, when you think of patriotism, certainly one thing you think about is, is, is this guy. Go back a little bit. I know I've made it difficult on you. Is there any chance we can? There it is. Is that not a great picture? Don't you want that on your desktop? Huh? I mean, the old eagle. 
You know, I mean, he's he's the the the, the national symbol here of. Uh, of, of our country, you know, the eagle. Now, did you know, by the way, that Ben Franklin hated the idea of an eagle representing our country? You know what he wanted? He wanted a turkey. He said, turkeys are clean animals, but this guy's a vulture, you know? <laughs> and, you know, he might have been right. I'll tell you, at times in our country, it seems like that would be a good symbol. But you know, there's a fascinating thing about this, this royal, beautiful creature, you know? Little eaglets, little baby eagles, you know? Um, with a, you've probably seen them soar high above, maybe even caught a glimpse of their big nests, you know, high up in the crag of a, a cliff, you know, or up in a tree somewhere. And, and maybe you've never seen, I have not, but I've read about them. Apparently, the eagle will, will, will start in building this nest by all kinds of rocks and sharp items. You know, kind of the bed of the whole thing. Well, that sounds terrible. Well, the next layer is the skins of the animals they've had for lunch. So, you know, little bunny fur and all kinds of soft and gloriously straw, soft, comfortable stuff in there. And that way, when the baby, baby eagles, you know, when they, they grow up to the flying age, you know, when they ought to get out of the nest, that wasn't a metaphor, that was real, but think of the metaphor. You know, the, 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 the mommy eagle says, hey, it's time to go, but they're like, we like the food and the accommodations are amazing, you know? I mean, we're saving up for something else. And mom says, okay, out you go. Starts pulling up all the soft stuff and tearing it out of the nest. And suddenly it ain't so comfortable anymore. Next step for the eagles is out of the nest. And soaring they begin. They will never soar if they never leave the nest. Wow. We could stop and pray right there, couldn't we? Because you all know the application of that. God's goal for us is to grow. God, the, the purpose of, of all that God is doing in your life, everything that is happening right now and has happened throughout all of your life has had one purpose, is to bring glory to God as you grow in Him, as you mature in the faith, as you live out this life He's given to you. Friends, that's grace. And perhaps in a in a less comfortable way. Now we're reading about uh, these, these believers who've done nothing more than put their faith in Jesus Christ and perhaps out of love for the people around them, talk to others about Jesus. And now people want Him dead. Well, God, what do you say about that? I mean, God, I thought you were good. Here I am doing what you called me to do. And look at the disaster that has befallen us. What does God have to say to those going through difficult and dark times? I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis that was asked so many times, why does God allow the Christian to suffer? And you know what his answer was? Beautiful answer. He says this. He says, they're the only ones that can handle it. Huh. I'm not sure I find that in the Scripture. James maybe has a little bit different answer, but it's true nonetheless. And we're going to look at a passage here that tells us how. How you can navigate successfully 
through difficult and dark times. I mean, they all come. Maybe you're in the midst of one right now, and you're like, well, I'm glad I came today. But friends, if you're not in one now, it's just a matter of time. And all of them are for the purpose of your growth. So take a look, friends. We're going to look at three habits that all of us need to develop in order to navigate through difficult, dark times successfully. Three habits we're going to look at. We looked at the author. We looked at the audience, friends. Now let's jump in and take a look at the first habit here in verse 2. The first habit that each of us needs to develop in our life is to rejoice in diverse trials and difficult trials. When the dark days come rolling in and everything seems to go wrong, we need to develop this habit to rejoice. Last night, as I was uh, finishing up all of the documents, the files that all go along with preaching a sermon on Sunday, including this guy, and suddenly Microsoft Word crashed. Not like the saved your work kind of crashed. Like all that stuff you've been doing for an hour and a half, why don't you redo that? And I did it. Because I'm like, stuff happens. It's okay. I wrote it the first time. Surely I can write it the second time. You know? And then I get to the end and I click save and it crashed again. Well, you know, it's... 6.30. I like to send it out somewhere after 7. Yeah, Camille's up there going, he didn't send it out till 8.30. <laughs> and it's true. Because after doing it again, it even crashed again. And throughout my house, there was a screech like no one had ever heard before. <laughs> I'm like, hey, wait a minute. What have I been studying here? I mean, the first habit is to rejoice when difficult times come. And so I stopped for a moment and I said, well, God, forgive me for looking at something for the last 20 days and not practicing it myself. When difficult days come, you can be certain that God is doing something good. It doesn't have to look good to be good, my friends. But God is up to something. And so this first habit tells us that we ought to adopt the right attitude in trials. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, count it all joy. The only way to consider difficulties as joy is when you know and believe that what is happening is for your good. And it is even better if that good is what you're longing for anyway. If spiritual growth is not making it in the top ten list of your life, these difficult things that God brings in to help you grow are nothing but a burden. But I'll tell you, when your purpose, your hope, and your longing is to grow in Christ you will see these things as joy. Hey, God's working on me. God's got some attention on me here to help me grow and become the man or the woman or the teenager that God wants me to be. Wow. 
So habit number one is to rejoice in diverse trials. Adopt the right attitude and understand the advantage of trials is, is, is mercy, uh, maturity. Look at verse 3, for you know, and if you don't, you should now, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. That word is mature, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. All of the skills, all of the abilities, all of the experience you need, God has to build into your life. And honestly, just like those little eaglets, they're not volunteering for the rough and jaggedy rocks. Mom in her wisdom says, got to pull out the fur if we're going to get them to grow. And the same is true with God. Certainly, God has a perfect design in timing in your life. And I know it always seems like the worst time for things to happen, but that's because God is all wise and knows there's no way you'll grow from the living room couch. You've got to get into some difficult times. You've got to get into a place where you can develop some skills and habits and learn to trust God. So adopt the right attitude. Understand the advantage of trials. Maturity is the goal. And oh, by the way, when you're in it, take advantage of God's resources for trials. You see, this is one of the things that oftentimes we think we're just alone in it. You know, like we got nothing. What are we supposed to do? You know, oftentimes the, the, the goal seems to be, how do I get out of this? How do I escape this? But what God wants to teach us is to endure it. And here we, we find this, this resources are abundant for us. Well, what do we got here? Look at verse 5. How about wisdom? Wisdom is insight into the will of God and the way it is to be applied. How ought we to respond in this circumstance? And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Well, that doesn't sound hard. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. What should I do? Well, ask God for wisdom. I mean, does that not make sense? God, help me figure this out. God, show me my next move. How should I respond to this? What action should I take, or should I stay just where I am? And the reason that God has James record this and the Spirit of God has preserved it for you and I is because wisdom is what we need. The insight into God's will and what He is doing and how we should respond. And all we need to do is ask for it. Now, God would not say ask for it if He wouldn't give it. You know, look, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives genu- genu- generously, generously, all without reproach, and it will be given Him. And then a couple of qualifications here, verse 6, but let them ask in faith without doubting. You know, that's not some magic spell to be thrown around. Okay, God, give me some wisdom. (laughs) I didn't think he would anyway. Friends, this is an act of faith, believing that what God said he would do, he will do. You know, people gets dry, and the grass starts getting brown, you know? And I wonder, in all of this dryness, thinking about the poor farmers and all of the crops, 
Have you thrown up a prayer to God? God, bring rain today. And then left your umbrella at home? Think about that. We pray for rain, but we leave our umbrellas at home. Friends, that's not faith. If you believe God hears your prayers and will answer, then you ought to live expectantly of an answer. Not arrogantly. It's not a demanding thing. But you believe that God is good, that God hears, and He will answer. So when you ask God for wisdom, expect it. That's faith. Anyone <laughs> listening, listening, listening carefully, wow, adopt the right attitude, understand the advantage, and take advantage of God's resources. The first resource is divine wisdom. Wow. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It's driven and tossed in the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Think about that. Without faith, your prayers are meaningless. I mean, you might as well be whistling a song, friends, if you're not believing in your praying. Hmm. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Hmm. So ask for wisdom. The resources of God in the midst of difficulty. Here are people running for their lives, leaving their homes, their families, places they've been for generations. What can we do? Ask God for wisdom. And second resource here in verse 9 is eternal perspective. I mean, to see the end from the beginning, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Friends, <laughs> that eternal perspective tells us the things that last are not the things that last for a moment, but the things that last for a lifetime, like character, like faith, like honoring God. Divine wisdom, eternal perspective. Hmm. And that's the first habit, to rejoice in diverse uh, trials. Adopt the right attitude. Understand the advantages. Take advantage of God's resources. And here in verse 12, hold on to God's promises. I mean, God has made some promises, friends. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, there is divine reward built into the one who responds the way that God would have him do it. It's just built in. I mean, God has done all sorts of things. You know, if you feel pain, God built in, that's a receptor to tell you something's wrong. Get off the nail, you know? I mean, whatever it is, God has built in all kinds of things in our design. You know, when you do something that's good and right, I've used this illustration before because it's so relatable. You people who make lists of things that you need to accomplish every day, 
You know, you do that, and you do it every day because you're addicted to it, really. You're list people. You know, you make out that list, and then every time you do one of them, oh, the glory, the pomp and the circumstance, and you cross out that, and it feels so good. Oh, I've done it. I've accomplished it. And there's nothing like looking back at the end of the day and saying, I did this, I did that, I did the other. And, and even if stuff doesn't make your list, you know this. If you did something that didn't, you go put it on the list just to cross it off. Your list, people, it's an addiction. God has built into us this reward system. Endorphins are released when we have done something we know that we, and it, it leaves us with a euphoric feeling. It's an addiction. But God builds these things into us. And so when trouble and difficult times come, and with understanding, you respond and take advantage of the, the, uh, the provision of God, then friends, blessing is built in. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Hmm. Built in. That's why you can rejoice. Hey, this is an opportunity to honor God, to grow in my faith, and to be honored by God. Wow, to stand before him one day and receive a crown of life. Wow, what a great opportunity, my friends. See, that's the last stuff we think about when difficult days come. Am I right? It's the last thing that comes to mind. But habit number one says, hey, we've got to get it as a habit. We've got to respond here first. God is up to something good. And if I respond the way I ought, it's only going to end well. First habit, rejoice in diverse trials. The second habit, down here in verse 13, is to resist deadly temptation. Because I'll tell you what, when difficult times come, they tend to accumulate. When we... we, we, we respond with escape and blaming and whose fault is this and I shouldn't be here. And we start our little tantrums running around the office or the home. Hmm. We've got to resist deadly temptation. And that begins by owning up. Owning up. Friends, if you're furious and you're stomping around the house and you're pointing your finger, you're looking for someone to blame it on. And the person you ought to look to is you. We start this habit by owning up. When you are tempted to sin, blame yourself. Because temptation begins with our own desire. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. This is God's fault. God put me here. God put that woman on the elevator. God made that God give me that contract to sign even though I... And we want to blame everybody around us, my friends. But the person to blame is yourself. Because temptation begins with our own desires. And temptation grows when we're deceived. Sin is a, is a ridiculous thing that we fall for it every time, but we do. You know, sin's like, hey, you got to have a little more. I mean, a little more won't matter. You know, hey, nobody's looking. Go ahead and take another look. You know, and we believe it every time. We're going to get away with it this time. And sin is so deceptive that way. 
Oh no, this will be good for you. I promise. I mean, you want it, don't you? So it's got to be good. We are, we are deceived by sin. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We deceive our own selves, my friend, thinking that somehow sin will pay off. But it does. It always pays off. And the payment is death. But look at verse 15. Temptation demands that we disobey. Temptation demands that we weigh what's going on here. Now, this is dishonoring to God. And I know even my parents said I should never do this kind of thing. Yeah, but it looks so good. We weigh it up. And then we disobey. See, no one is tripped up into sin. Nobody, nobody falls into it. Every decision of sin is just that, a planned movement. We weigh the options. I could walk away or I could step in. But our desire says, go for it. And we are fooled by it. Hmm. We, 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 our temptation demands that we disobey God. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin is nothing but selfishness. It's the opposite of love. And that temptation always ends in death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's the pattern. We get in a difficult situation. We want to blame someone. And the only one to blame is ourselves. Hmm. So, friends, how do you resist temptation? First of all, own up. Know that the issue of sin is in you, not out there. It's not the people around you. They may awaken your desires, but my friend, those desires are only yours. And then notice, uh, wise up. We ought to own up and then wise up. The fact is, the gift that you're looking for in every sin, the reality is found in God. You find that, that uh, phone sitting out, Ain't nobody around, and you grab it. Eh, you people aren't thieves. But that's how it works. How about the opposite? You save up the money for the big and glorious fill-in-the-blank. Whatever it might be, oh, if we had that, our life would be so much better. You know, we, we say we don't think that way, but we do. And we think more about it, and then we think, okay, I'm just going to buy it. All right, got to have it now. I'm going to have it shipped one day. I know it's like $40, but i got to have it. And, and all we think is, is that we will finally be satisfied if only we have these things. But the satisfaction you're looking for can only be found in God. You know, we, we take all of these substitutes. We need, we need peace, but we'll substitute it for sleep. Oh, at least when I'm asleep, I forget it all. But the peace we long for can only be found in God. We've got to wise up. You look for the answers that only God can give. You look for the, the satisfaction and the peace that only God can provide, but you demand it in others and in things. Hmm, got to wise up, my friends. That desire can only be met in God. Stop trying to make it fit. Your spouse, your neighbors, your stuff only can be found in God. So the gift you're looking for is God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Not going to find it here. His gifts are constant. Look at coming down. This is a present tense continuous action. Continuing to come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. You know, by the way, his gifts are for his children. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. <laughs> first fruits indicates the best. God is doing a work in us. This salvation is the first fruits that he's referencing, the best stuff that God has for us. But those gifts are only for his kids. You see, here's the thing, that you and I as believers, we ought to know that. We ought not to be fooled by the things of this world that promise us stuff that only God can give. The rest of the world has no idea. It has no access, and it only has frustration and emptiness and anger because they'll never find outside of God what they're looking for. Hmm, Wow. So friends, you got to own up. Resist this deadly temptation. It starts with owning up. You are the issue. It is desire. It's not geography. It's not the people you hang around with. Desire starts with you. You got to wise up. The stuff you're looking for can only be found in God. And then finally, hush up. I battled with that one. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Yeah, quick to hear. Listen more and talk less. Listen more and talk less is wisdom on this, my friends. Because when you start the talking, it gets worse. The passion, the desire, and suddenly we're in verse 19b, slow to anger. You know, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. When you can control your tongue, which is a very difficult thing, and we'll read about it in pages to come, anger produces nothing. There's no value to anger. You know, you get talking, you get frustrated, you get louder, and then you get meaner. And my friends... Hmm. Listen up, talk less. Anger produces nothing. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so receive God's Word. When you receive God's Word, it changes everything. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. Hmm. So put it all away, the anger and the wrath and the desire and the sin. Put it all away. Take in the Word of God. That changes everything. The filthiness, the wickedness, the covetousness, the meekness. Receive the meekness of the implanted Word. Hmm. And then we have a third habit. The third habit. Third habit, friends, we look at three habits here. You remember the three habits? The first is to rejoice in your trials. The second, the second, my friends, is to resist temptation. 
resist temptation, and finally, respond to God's Word. Respond. It's not something we do. We're good listeners, and we're good readers, and we know stuff. But the call, friends, is to respond to it, to do something with it. When you hear the Word of God, you are called to make a decision. I suppose one decision could be to simply walk away and do nothing. But it certainly is not the decision and the response that God is looking for. Look at verse 22. James reminds us, don't just read God's Word. Verse 22, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves, thinking that by knowing stuff, you are growing in that stuff. The only way to grow in the Word is to know it and to do it. If you're not doing it, you're not growing in it. Knowledge itself is not a virtue. Knowing something is just knowing something. It is the person who does it that develops the character that is produced by it. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You imagine walking up to the mirror and looking, oh my goodness, my eye, my hair, and then walking away, and then going to see people, and they're like... (laughs) What happened? Are you okay? Were you in an accident? What do you mean? Oh, I forgot. Friends, the purpose of a mirror is to take action, just like the purpose of the Word of God is to understand and then to act. Don't just read God's Word. Don't just be a hearer of God's Word. Certainly, that's where it starts. But friends, the one who hears and walks away unchanged has missed the whole point. Act on God's Word. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That is God's favor in our lives. The blessing of God is to give us the ability or the favor, whatever it is that is appropriate for the purpose in which we are acting, whatever our context, whether we need the favor of God, whether we need the abilities of God, but that is the blessing of God. And the one who hears it and does it as a built-in response receives the blessing of it. Wow. Respond to God's Word, my friends. Don't just read it. Act on it because the fruit in hearing and doing is blessing. Look at verse 26. I mean, look at the result. Look at how different a person is when they hear it and do it. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you see what is in common there? Widows, orphans, they can do nothing for you, 
It takes something like love to do something for someone who can do nothing in return. It is the exact opposite of sin. Sin says, I do for me. Love says, I do for others. And that is what God is producing in us, to think less about ourselves and to think more about others. And in that, when we think about others and how our actions impact them, then we will stay unstained from the world. Sermon in a sentence, life's trials should be valued, not vilified, not something to complain about, but to rejoice in, because we know that God, our Heavenly Father, is at work in our lives. Life's trials should be valued, not vilified. And navigating trials, navigate trials by trusting in God and obeying His Word. How do we get through it? How can we endure it? How can we navigate through it successfully? Trusting in God and obeying His Word. Benefit from trials by enduring, not escaping. Friends, God brought it to grow you, not to see how well you can squirm away from it. The only way up is through. The only way up is through. And remember this. People of God are not perfected by childish pursuits. The only way to grow is to get out of your comfort zone, to get in a place where God has called you, even though it's uncomfortable and unfamiliar, my friends, and plow through. Hmm. Well, if you're in some dark days, here's some good tips for you. This is what God says. These are the the lights that come on when the lights go out and show you the way through. The doors are this way. This is the way through it, my friends. Be wise. Take advantage of these things, these resources that God has made available to us. (laughs) And then see what God develops in you. You're going to look different, 